right. Um, <clears throat> it was a fantastic week again. Uh, chapter 4 opens us up with so much more, again, practical things. We were hitting some really practical things in chapter 1 and 2 on Paul demonstrating to us what was going on in his life and how God was using that and how he was being cooperative with God and how, of course, he was rejoicing in it, which is what he, the major theme is of our book, that we should rejoice in the Lord always, regardless of our circumstances. So we see that in chapter 1, and in chapter 2, then he, he spurs them on to a, um, an extension of understanding your personal debt to God in, in a way of saying it. It's a, it's a responsibility as covenant partners with God that we honor him and put him first, right? As he always honors us and puts us first. And then in chapter two, he says, now take that to the next step. And that is as brothers and sisters in Christ, you have a debt to one another as well. You have a responsibility to put the needs of others above yourself and that in doing this, then you truly are going to honor the Lord and you're going to bless the, the brethren, bless the household of faith. And, and this is what God says, then basically live your life for others, putting the needs of others above your own. Now, three, he, he talks about that which spurs us on. Now, you tell me, what did you learn back in three? Because we're just coming out of chapter three. What did you see in chapter three was that overriding message? And how did you title that chapter three? Did I not give you enough lead in in your thoughts? <laughs> I was hoping to get your, your, the juices in your, in your mind going here a little bit. We'll oil the the joints a little bit with some thoughts. Let's go back. Rejoice in the Lord always is our major theme. Yes. Okay, but you know what? The way that you just said that made me trigger a thought. Doesn't that almost seem like a contrast? One has to do with the physical here and now flesh, but one has to do with the, with the physical reality of eternity, right? And he's saying the real reality is the real reality in our life on a daily basis is at the here and now. Are we actually living in the here and now? The answer is of course we are. But does it seem to you that that Paul is trying to impress upon them that the here and now is the temporal, that the eternal things are the things that are actually lasting and are the things which are going to go on and on. I mean, forever is a long time, wouldn't you say? So how long is your life here? <coughs> we didn't look at these, but can you think of some scriptures in, in, um, even in the New Testament, like in Matthew and so forth, where God makes a comparison about our lives, how quick they are? Can you think of some of those? Pardon? We are like a breath. Like, there you go. Go for it, girl. We're like the grass that 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 rises up and then withers and dies. Right? It's like a moment. And so, if we consider that that's the true reality about this life, and it's the temporal. So he starts out. He's saying, first of all, he says, don't put confidence in the flesh because. 
you know, in many ways, although he doesn't directly say it there, this life, the, the, this temporal life is temporal, <laughs> right? However, there's an eternal life that's coming. And so don't put confidence in the temporal, but keep your eyes on the eternal. Now, there's also an under girding truth that's been taught in there and that is this tug of war between the law versus grace although it also is not directly addressed but the subtleties are there if you know scripture at all you know that this is a principle that's that's kind of beneath the surface of the things that he's saying there right um okay so in that though then in chapter three then how would you title that then with kind of all those thoughts about He's saying about when you do, if you do live in the flesh, and you do, how are you to live in the flesh? Live in, there you go, that's a good one. Live in light of eternity. So he says it in 314 about press on to the goal. That's the idea. Keep your, uh, there's one in, I would, which I have quoted several times, set your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, right? who for the joy set before him endured the cross. In other words, he lived this physical life, and he endured what he had to in this flesh. But he did so, and then what happened? He was exalted to the right hand of the throne of God. And so he's saying, live this life, understanding. Uh, when he closed chapter 1, he said, it is not only granted to you to believe on him, but to what? But to suffer for him. So he's, this is kind of woven in as well in chapter 3. I see that chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4 really are, are truly just one continuous flow of thought. He, he goes from one thought to the next, he, and he kind of sublimely keeps bringing in the things that he's laid down previously, and he, and he kind of builds on them as he moves through this book. In chapter 3, then, when he says then to basically catch your, keep your eyes upon that goal, but while you're in the here and now, what are you, how are you to live? Bringing glory to who? To God. And so he says, I think it was, let me look and see. There you go. In, chap, in chapter 3, verse 3, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So even though you're in this flesh, you're living in this life, you're not to put your confidence in that, but you're to glory in Christ Jesus who is the reality of who you are, even in the flesh. In the flesh, we are, we are a, a people who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we worship him, even in our flesh, in, a, in true worship, what he refers to as the true circumcision. And in that statement about the circumcision comes the subliminal point of law versus um, grace, right? Okay, so... Chapter 3, title me, give me a couple of titles on that. How, how have you titled chapter 3? Okay, glory in Christ Jesus. And then in order to, co to complete the thought then, we start with the glorying in here, in the here and now. But why? What is it that's motivating you to glory in him? For the upward call in Christ Jesus. That's good. Excellent. For the upward call. Okay. Now, your title may not be exactly. Now, one of the one of the things again, we're gonna, I'm just going to say it because 
you know, it has to be said over and over a hundred million times. Um, our titles do not all have to be the same. The message and the understanding of whatever title you give to it has to help you when you go back to your Philippians book. It has to trigger for you an understanding of the concepts that are in there. It's about you understanding what God has said in the book of Philippians. Um, now, can there be a right or can there be a wrong title? Well, there can be one that's maybe better than another. Let me just put it that way instead. It's really not so much about right and wrong as it is about trying to get to the most precise place. This is why when you are doing your at-a-glance chart, how many of you have been working on the at-a-glance chart? If you're not still working on it, pull it out every time you do your homework. I'm still working on mine, but my titles change. As I, as I move through, I mean, I start out with one title, and then I end up with this, go to another one, and then I go to another one. I don't have the same titles here. If I pull out my at-a-glance chart back from, at the beginning of my uh, book, it's different than it is here at this point because I'm refining it, and I'm trying to crystallize my thoughts, crystallize my understanding. Sometimes, as, uh, as you are moving through a book, you get a better understanding about what you just read in the previous chapter by what's said in the next chapter. You know, maybe another point is brought up, which all of a sudden you're going, oh, that's what that was talking about. And then you go back to it, and you're going, oh, now I see it. And so you cr your thoughts get better clarified in, as you move. This is the lovely value of doing your inductive Bible study is that you are meditating on it on a deep level and you're adding to it your knowledge as you do your word studies, as you do your list making, as you look at your contrasts and comparisons, as you really dig in and do the hard work, then God is letting that just kind of simmer on the, on the stovetop in your mind. You know, and it's, it's on a low simmer until it, it, little by little it starts to crystallize and become better understood by you, right? So just keep doing that. Keep working on those observation or on those um, at-a-glance charts, rather, and crystallizing those titles. Okay, so live to Christ. Now look at how short these titles are for me now at this point. Chapter 1, live to Christ. Chapter 2, live for others. Chapter 3, glory in Jesus. And for the upward call, that, that's a really good title. Um, I had glory in Jesus and press on to the goal. Okay, that's another good title as well. Um, and we now know what is that goal. In chapter 3, it really does have kind of two points to it, doesn't it? It's about living this life and about looking for what's coming ahead. It's a combination of both. It's not just one without the other. It's really a, a, a blend of the two, living in the here and now with, the, with eternity in mind, right? Okay, so that's in chapter 3. Now we're moving on to chapter 4. Now how I'm going to start us a little bit differently. Before we jump right into observations, I want to start with again observing um, how things connect with one another. Because we did this last week and we said how does this chapter relate to that the previous chapter, right? At the end of chapter 3 we said how does the, that last paragraph relate to the paragraph before it? And we spent quite a bit of time looking at that. And in the end what I had said to you is what that led me to do is back up to the previous chapter and then to the previous chapter. And by the time I was done I was all the way back to chapter 1. 
right? And they just linked, one linked to the other. And it really kind of showed you the beautiful flow that, the, that this author really, um, under inspiration of God, this divine inspiration is so miraculous that it just has this beautiful flow that nothing, it is really not disjointed. So in chapter 4, how does it begin? Oh boy, here we go again. There's an opening of a therefore. Now, when we have a therefore, what does that tell you? Yeah, it means you're going to have to go back. So when you go back, how far back do you have to go b to the start of that thought? There you go, exactly. Perfect. Okay, very good. Therefore, 4-1, this takes you, okay, so let's put this up here. It takes you back. Uh, I put uh, even just 317 to 21. Whoops. That kind of, is that enough? Kind of, it's pretty close, right? Starting in 17, he says, brethren, do what? Join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Now, just by that statement alone, now what do you have to do? You have to go back to the, the, the previous. And when is the previous time talked about following an example? Actually, you have to jump all the way back to chapter 2. And you see in verse 18, I, I urge you. Rejoice in the same way. He's speaking about the same way of following, right? But, and he's just said in 17, I'm being poured out as a drink offering, right? And you're like, okay, well, that's interesting. In this, but in again, he says in the same way. So in the same way, then you have to do what? You have to go back to in the same way as before it was mentioned, correct? Now you're all the way back to where? Chapter 2, verse 5. <coughs> Right? Where it says, have this attitude. Right? And whose attitude do we start with as our foundation for following? Christ himself. In the same way, have this attitude in yourselves, uh, which was also in Christ Jesus. So what was the attitude in Christ Jesus? Takes you back. Okay, so we can go all the way back to 2, uh, 5. And it's actually all the way through to um, 11, I think it is, to 5 to 11, uh, as Christ. As Christ. And he says, um, have the same attitude of Christ, which is humility, was one of the words. We also, another word that, that really captures it in that verse is what? What is he referred to as or called? He's called a, burn, a bond servant, and we know what that's all about because we've covered that so many times as a bond servant. Humility and a bond servant. Uh, also sacrificial and obedience. Wow. And then he's so, so in essence, what he's really saying is he says, follow my example. If you want to just simplify it, you have to, say, saying to you, when Paul says to you, follow my example, what you have to do is you have to drop back and add in all these other details that we've already laid down.
So your, your brain has to reach back and pull into the following my example, the example that Christ set out first, the idea of, of serving God in humility or humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God, which is what Christ himself did. He humbled himself. He became a man. He took on the, the form of a bondservant. He was sacrificial in his giving all the way to death on the cross, and he was obedient all the way to the cross. And so in this way, Paul says, therefore, he takes you back to follow my example because why? And, he's, and he says, the pattern you have in us, that's in 3.17, okay, so that's back here again. Follow my example, the pattern that you have in us. He reminds them about what their goal is, right? Where does he say in verse 20? Citizenship is in heaven, so don't forget that. And he tells him in 21 what to do then. Is in heaven, and then what does he want us to do? Eagerly. <laughs> eagerly await, or eagerly wait for the Lord. Interesting how this, this subject of the Lord's coming and of the resurrection from the dead and of, of um, the eternal glory that we're waiting for one day to come, all this keeps coming up over and over. And these, how does he use those references in this book? What, what is his purpose in bringing them up? Why does he keep telling you to think about heaven? Is that encouraging? Do you think that's encouraging to us when we're going through hard times? If you're suffering and you're em emotionally spent or you're physically even in, in a great deal of pain, maybe you're you know, going through a physical hardship, is it an exhortation to, to you in your thinking about the fact that you know what, what Paul actually says back in chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Is that it actually, it, it's not a dismal thing like, oh, well, whatever. It's not a whatever statement, is it? It's a statement that says, I am willing to do either. And if I do die, to die is gain. And if, if you do not have that attitude as a Christian, this is the call for that. This this book exhorts you to understand that this life is the temporal. You are, you are in this world preparing for the life to come. I don't think we really grab hold of that hard enough. Um, there are some really good studies. We've, we've never done one. I would love to. I, I'm not even sure if Precept has one out. But on the idea of rewards, you know, I would love to do something like that sometime because I feel like, no, we're not living to 
just get rewards. It isn't for the rewards in and of themselves. But the fact is, God, does God exhort us to understand that there's a day of reward coming? The first and foremost reward is, is mentioned in chapter 3 at the end of it. And what is that? To, that he will transform our body into his glorious body. We will have the same form that he has. We will have that glorified body. That's the first and foremost reward. But beyond that, when we go to that place and we are, to, uh, we are ushered into the presence of God, there's another event that's going to occur there, right? Does anybody know what that is? Um, let's see. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about it. That's right, receiving a crown. Now, in chapter 4, does he actually make a very light reference to that? You are my joy and my crown. Isn't that interesting that he drops that in, you are my joy and my crown? Why would he bring the fact that they are his crown up at this point? Right. So it sounds to me like it's an okay thing for you guys to be thinking about rewards that come from for faithful service to the Lord here in this present life. Yes. That's exactly right. And we talked about that a little bit in class yesterday morning, too. Exactly. So we know now at this point that the opening of this, this therefore is a huge therefore. I mean, that is like, okay, take a, take a pause, spend about an hour, ponder on all these things that you've already come through it up to this point. Now step into the next part of what he's going to say. So after that, he says, just as what Craig said a moment ago, he says then, in this way, and so I'm going to do this. In this way, he means it this way, right? So you can put a, I just put a little puffy cloud around all these points. The therefore takes you back basically to 317 to 21, but that encompasses pretty much everything that even was mentioned before it. Things like following his example, the pattern that you have in us, he says in 317. Uh, our citizenship is in heaven. Eagerly wait for the Lord. All of that is based on following his example, which is the same um, example which is given to you through Christ, who Christ is the, is the, the template. He's the master plan, and he's the thing that he says, have this same mind in yourselves that, that Christ had, and Christ humbled himself. Christ became a bondservant. You're to do that as well. So all this is accompanied. So now he says, in this way, basically then, follow, follow my example, right? And... Remember um, the goal that lies ahead. Okay. Now. Now that we have that set, now we're ready to go back into the chapter 4 and try to find... Um, the, the major points that are being brought out. Now, how many of you 
figured out that chapter 4 has like a gazillion <laughs> possible subjects in it. Did it feel a little bit like a, have you ever had a, done, done a puzzle, a jigsaw puzzle? I'm sure you all have. And you throw out on the table all the pieces and you're sitting there looking at this pile of different odd shapes and things and some are bright colors and some are, you know, got the edge pieces and so forth. All the, and you're looking at this pile of pieces and you're going, Ugh, where do I even start? I kind of felt that way about chapter four in a little, in a, in, in some small way. Not that I went into it and felt like I was, I was totally overwhelmed, but when it came to me crystallizing the major subject of, this, of the message here in chapter 4, it was a little challenging, was it not? <laughs> After all, every time you hit a subject and he elaborated on it, and especially when you started doing your word studies and you started getting m even more things kind of coming to your thought about it, you get really excited about it and then you go, whoa, that's really good, that's got to be what this is about, right? And then you go to the next subject and do another word study, and guess what? Oh, that's really good, too. Oh, okay, erase, erase, erase. Let's try a different title, right? Did you feel like you were doing that in here? Okay, so what we want to do is start by throwing our puzzle pieces on the board this morning. Just, just throw out the things that you see going on in this book. And then what we're going to try to do is try to find the one thread that kind of pulls them all together so that you can come up with a nice, concise title for this particular chapter. So let's do, um, let me go over here. I'll put it on this board here. Keywords. Now, your keywords, and in this case, I'm going to say subjects as well as, a, as another way of helping you understand them. Not just looking for key repeated words, because sometimes they're only mentioned once, but then each, each section kind of covers that in, in a, a more extensive way. It, it, it'll elaborate on it. Okay, tell me some keywords or key subjects that you see in Chapter 4. Obviously, Rejoice is in here which is our book um, key subject, keyword. So it's definitely going to be in there. And I love the fact that in 4.4, this is where, I don't know about you guys, but it's the one that I chose to be my book keyword uh, verse. And I did that for my reasons. You tell me, why did you pick that? Because I, I see a lot of you nodding your head. Yes, that's why that's the book or the verse that you also picked. Why is that the verse you picked as your key verse? And don't say because Katie said so. <laughs> okay. How is it stressed in the way it's presented there? That's exactly, it is not the first place. That is absolutely true. So why land on this verse as your key verse? There you go. Read it out loud, Janice, because you've got it. That's exactly right. There you go. So it's just the way he states it. He just makes such an emphatic statement on it. He repeats it, and he repeats it in a way that he's not saying, I'm not just saying rejoice. I'm saying rejoice. Again, I will say to you, rejoice. So he makes it really clear that, there, that he is strongly emphasizing that this is an overriding theme that he has going on in this book. Even though he's got a million other things that he's talking to them about along the way, but he interjects this, the subject of rejoicing in it or rejoicing 
even in spite of it, in many cases, as he goes throughout, progressively throughout this book. So chapter 4, verse 4, makes that statement in that way, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Okay, so that is a, is a key word, and it is a book key word, all right? What else do we see in chapter 4? We see peace. Isn't it, isn't it interesting how um, the peace of God, when you start thinking on that particular subject, and if you did any word studies, I don't know if you did, or if you did any cross-referencing about the subject of, of peace or the peace of God, which she didn't ask us to do, but if you did, did anybody do that? I've looked up that peace of God. Okay. <laughs> okay. When, when you... When you, look for, when you look at these words and their definitions, often what they do is help you to just kind of... So I, I remember, so when I looked at the peace of God in Romans, it, anyway, it had to do with the Jewish Hebrew thinking of wholeness. Oh, interesting. Wholeness, and it's like, it's kind of a customary Jewish, you know, greeting. It is. It's not only a greeting, but it's also a departure. Um, how many of you guys know about the Jewish custom of how they would extend their hands over a person and give them a blessing, a blessing of peace usually? But they will even do this with their, ch their school children on their way out the door for school for the day. I mean, this is just like a real traditional thing. The idea of extending peace or, or blessing people with the peace of God um, is, is very, very Jewish. <laughs> Yeah. It's a sense of health or welfare of an individual. So it was, yeah. It's and that is awesome. Okay. All right. The city of peace. Yes, shalom. That's right. Very good. Excellent. Okay. So peace is definitely a key word that you picked up on, or at least a key subject. And it relates to another key subject, which is? In this particular case, he brings up peace. What, is, what does peace come from? Out of? What's it, what's it a result of? Prayer. So the subject of prayer came up. All right. Any thoughts on that? Well, we'll get back to it. Okay, let's move on. What else? Right, which implies that what was going on for them, that they were being anxious, right? As a matter of fact, some of the commentaries I read say that in the original language, be anxious for nothing can actually be, be st stated in this way, stop it. <laughs> I thought that was hysterical. <laughs> oh, that's funny. It, it's more of a command kind of statement, be anxious for nothing, it's, a, it's an imperative statement, and it's really saying stop being anxious. It's a command kind of a statement. Okay, perfect. Okay, now we're, now we're cooking. Let's talk about some of these other commands. What are some of the other things that are said in here? Stand firm. Okay. Stand firm. And you actually just mentioned in the Lord. Um, 
I don't know if any of you picked up on it as I did. Now, we know we always mark God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, right? But did you guys notice how many times that phrase, in the Lord, is actually in this particular chapter? I did, too. It was like... And also, right, which is another way of saying in the Lord, right? He says, rejoice in the Lord always. But he said up in verse 1, stand firm, in the Lord. And in number 2, he says to do what? Live in harmony in the Lord. So, again, here's another word, the idea of harmony. And the command is live in harmony. I'm just putting the words up for right now, okay? All right, live in harmony. Stand firm in the Lord, rejoice, right? Poor, I know, it's so sad. You know what, I just, I got to tell you though, I, I, in my own personal life, you know, I think of times when there have been arguments or disagreements between myself and others, um, and I think as you get older, you, you do get more sensitive to that. You learn that it's just, it's just not, it's not a pleasing thing to the Lord for this kind of dis, disunity to be going on in the body of Christ. So we're going to elaborate on that just in a few more minutes. We'll expound on that when we look at our word studies, because these were some things that we looked up. All right. Um, wh what about other subjects or other commands? Okay, the idea of a gentle spirit, and that was, again, another word that we looked up. Um, we can do kind of some contrast while we're here. Interesting to me was, I was contrasting the gentle spirit with the wrong things until I did my word studies. Did anybody of you, of you guys kind of discover that, that once you did your word studies, that you were actually perceiving it, it through English thinking and that you had to change your contrast list? Did anybody else do that? How many of you did contrast? Yay! <laughs> okay. I, I thought it was really interesting. What did you contrast um, that gentle spirit with? See, when I first did it, I don't want to put anyone on the spot. I'll tell you what I did, how I messed it up. I did your... Gentle spirit versus being anxious. And I had contrasted those two things. Well, I did, because to me, if you're not anxious, then you have a gentle spirit, right? That was my thinking on it. But once I did the word study on it, I found out that that's not it at all. That's not what he was saying. What was he talking about the gentle spirit being contrasted with? Did anybody figure that out? Aha! Uh -huh. Aha! Uh -huh. Isn't that amazing? Now, when you did your paragraph divisions, did that change where your paragraph divisions went? See how then now what you have to do is your paragraph has to include the, uh, the, the exhortation for you to have a gentle spirit has to be contained within that same paragraph where the disharmony is going on. Did you notice that? I noticed that, and I think on our observation worksheet, it kind of gives you a bulleted, a dark bulleted place where you're kind of supposed to see that that is a, as a marker for division. But once I saw that wor that word study, I went, "Oh my gosh, this first this first uh, paragraph, this has to go from two all the way down through five. 
rather than uh, stopping up above that, where before I was putting the gentle spirit in with the prayer stuff, and that's not where it belongs. Isn't that interesting? I thought that was, oh, come on, guys. I think that's pretty cool. See how how much you can get out of just a word study, how much it can help you clarify really what the, what the point was and what he was saying. So in this, this contrast, let's put this on here. He, basically, the word is then disharmony. Okay, but tell me, tell me by definition what that's speaking of. Because I looked, I did do the word study on it. Uh-huh. I know the English says gentle spirit, and I think that's why the, ang- the idea of being anxious, not being anxious, made me couple it with the, the gentle spirit. But as it turns out, that, that, that wasn't what it was at all. Okay. It means it means patient, it means mild, it means gentle, it means gracious. It means not to speak evil of or to be quarrelsome. Aha, uh-huh. interesting. As soon as I saw that definition, that's number 1933 in your, and it's an adjective, by the way, so it's a descriptive word. Um, and so this idea of a, being a gentle spirit, it's not a, it's not a noun, right? It's not a verb. It's, a, it's an adjective. So it's describing the spirit, and it's saying it's, it's one who is not, does not speak evil of, nor is they, are they quarrelsome. Yes. 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 Exactly. And has he discussed that whole concept prior to this? Yes. And that is what these two ladies were not doing. They had not come to a place of yielding to one another. Right, putting one another's needs above their own. They had not come to a place of letting others be more important than themselves. They need to get to that place. But what I loved about the way that this subject is introduced with these two ladies, um, when he speaks of these ladies, when Paul himself speaks of these ladies, what does he say about them? What does he does he lead in with? You know, go beat them over the head and throw them out of, on the porch set them each in a corner and put their nose up against the wall? No, he doesn't do that, does he? Instead, what does he do? He's first, I love that. Now, that was my closing line, but since you jumped there, their names are in the book of life. So what is he giving an assurance by saying that statement right there? That they are believers, and just because they're in a place of quarreling with one another, what's not going to happen? They're not going to lose their position in the the book of life, right? there you go. Love one another. Exactly. But I love the fact that he actually jumps in here and says, but their names are in the book of life. He also commends them before that about something. Yeah. He acknowledges 
their participation in his work for the gospel up to this point. That it was a value, that it was significant, that it was uh, uh, well received, that it was important to him and to others, right? And so he commends them for what they have done in the past. He then assures them that their names are in the book of life, right? That this, this does not negate any of those two things. But then he says to them, what? Go slam their heads up against one another and make them, you know, stand there until they apologize to each other. No, he's very, and so when he does this, how does, how, what is Paul's approach? There you go. Isn't that interesting? Where he has said to us here at the opening of chapter 4, follow my example, Right? And what is his example here when he's talking about how he's dealing with these women? What is he being? He's being gentle, right? And he's asking those others who are around him, them to, to come alongside and to help. Did anybody kind of either read something or do some research on the idea of what he's asking this uh, companion to do? Yeah. No, it's 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 a come alongside of the idea. He says, "Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women." Now, one of the commentaries. Does your Craig did anything you read on that? Where did it explain a little bit in the original Greek about what this meant to come alongside and to help them? Okay, one of the, the, did anybody else read something? No. When he speaks about them, true companion, now, he doesn't name the person, so we don't know who this true companion is, but apparently he's speaking to someone who, who must realize who he's speaking to. One of the commentaries actually gave the person a name, and I thought that was kind of strange. I thought, no, how would they know who that was? But... One thing we do know, names mean something. So the idea of the word even, the wording of true companion, there's probably names that mean true companion. And maybe that's how this person reached out of, into the you know, clear blue sky and came up with a name for him. But I'm just, I'm not sure on that. But I love how Paul is the example in this. He is gentle with them. He is... Um, compassionate in it. He assures them of salvation. He assures them of their fine work that they have done previous to this. He's, he's letting them know that, you know, a disturbance like this or a, or a break in relationship like is going on with them. First of all, it's serious. It needs to be fixed, but it's not the end of the world. Be, we can fix this. Whew. Isn't that good to know? Because do these kinds of broken relationships occur? Have, do they occur pretty regularly in the household of faith? Yeah. Because we have differences of opinions on things. We, we, we don't all think exactly the same thing. And we bring to, to the table or into life with us our own personal life experiences and the way we view things, right? We also bring into this, by the way, our spiritual giftedness. 
God has gifted each one of us with different ways of approaching people and things. One of the things I, that I'm not really great at is mercy. Now, I know my lovely friend of, uh, has said, don't criticize yourself. And I'm not criticizing myself, but I am being, you know, truthful. When I do my testings and I know my personality, mercy is not my highest strength as far as a spiritual gift is concerned. Teaching is. Word of exhortation would be. Word of wisdom. Um, I'm much a, a little bit of a prophet. I'm much more pragmatic. So the way I deal with people and issues is, is I would come to the plate and I would say, does it hurt when you do that? Yes. Then don't do that. Right? But there are people who have got mercy gifts and they come to the plate and they say, oh, does it hurt when you do that? Oh, I'm so sorry. Let me give you a hug. Right? And I'm going, don't give them a hug. Kick their butt and make them get to work. Right? <laughs> <laughs> What good are you doing if you just make them feel, you know, good about themselves, right? So it's two different approaches. Now, is one right and one wrong? No. But, and are they both needful in the body of Christ? Yes. Each to their own time and in their own appropriate um, measure. What we have to do as God's family is follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. I love, this is one of the reasons I really love that verse in chapter 3 where it says, we are the true circumcision and we worship, how does he say it? By, um, let me just read it directly because I don't want to, I don't want to mess it up. Uh, We worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. When you and I are exercising our spiritual giftedness, we need to be very careful to listen to the following of the Holy Spirit. Do not jump ahead of God and do not, do not let your spiritual gifting always be the one that has to have the loudest voice in the room. Give, every, give God room to uh, allow the working of, of his totality in each situation. Would you say that Paul is an especially compassionate person? On the whole, about his character... Is compassion and mercy his strong suit? Not really. But would you say in this instance we're seeing it? Absolutely. So that's a great, I think, a great example where he says, follow in my example. Follow me as I am following Christ. Is, is Christ compassionate and merciful? Where was the verse that says, hold on a second. I know I have it. Hang on. Because I just did a chart on this yesterday and I was following my own flow of thought in this book here about Paul's attitude and he says in chapter 1 verse 18 I rejoice and he does this he says I rejoice in 118 regardless of my circumstances he is he is rejoicing because the gospel is being proclaimed he's rejoicing whether he's going to live or die regardless of it he is rejoicing because Christ is being exalted right? The gospel was being preached. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 1, what?
Wow. Would you say chapter 2, verse 1, kind of is a great like springboard back to looking at how Paul is being the example. And he, he said he has already laid this down in chapter 2 that he's, where he tells them if there is any love, if there's any... He says, be of the same mind with one another in this. If there is any encouragement in Christ. Well, is there? Do you find encouragement in who Christ is? Tell me some things about Christ that gives you encouragement. Not just necessarily from this study, but about who Christ is. What gives you encouragement? In this book, he, he actually lays that out very clearly in, in the verses that follow in 5 to 10, that he was, he was humble. He was a bondservant. He laid his life down, okay? He is a merciful and faithful high priest. The idea of his faithfulness, how important is that to you as a believer? When we did some work later this week in chapter, uh, I think it was uh, week lesson five or day five of our homework, uh, where we looked at Jehoshaphat, did Jehoshaphat himself rely on the faithfulness of God in the way that he approached God? Yeah, so if there's any, any fellowship, if there's any um, consolation of love, if there's any encouragement in Christ, those things are so essential because those are what are going to, to basically be a foundation upon which or a foundation through which you operate. What you know, now to me this takes me back to chapter 1 where he has a pray for, prayer for them. And this I pray for you, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. When you have real knowledge of God, discernment is born out of it, and then comes love. Are we seeing this in Paul as he handles these two women? Yeah. Wow. Okay, so back to key words. <laughs> That was a long roundabout. Keywords and contrast. Any other keywords for you? We have rejoice, peace, prayer, anxious, stand firm. This, the phrase in the Lord, the idea of harmony and a gentle spirit. Those all came up as keywords. Um, he taught. There were two major subjects that come up, which are not camped on, but are are subjects of interest. About we've already mentioned one was. The crown, right? The idea of the crown. You might want to have marked that. It's not as major in here, but the reference to it is, um, I think, important because it seems to be something which he uses as a, 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 a like an exhortation, right? He's he's letting you know that it for him they are his joy, and his crown, right? And when you ponder on that, what does that mean? Another one was that book of life. Boy, doesn't everybody want to know about that book of life? Yeah, that's a fun. Every time I do a study, the book of life comes up, especially young believers that haven't done a whole lot of Bible study. They always want to know about that book of life, right? So that's another subject. Me too. Very good. Yeah. 
There's a bunch of verses in here. To, to, you could almost memorize this whole chapter. It'd be a great me, verse to memorize. But very encouraging, positive for me. Mm-hmm. But you know what? When you wrote those, you're saying you didn't do paragraphs. I'll bet you in your list you did paragraphs. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely is. And this is why Paul says, in this way, follow my example. And the very first thing he does is he gives them an example of how to handle disunity that's going on in the body of Christ. And he does it by exhortation. I mean, there are some processes here. I almost wonder if there are other passages, which I didn't go and look for, but if there's other scriptures where it talks about how you correct people and how you uh, maybe correct or rebuke sin or how you, how you even confront people who have wronged you. I mean, I'm wondering if some of these steps are actually in what he does here. I think it, it's really um, a really neat example there of what he's the point that he's trying to make. Um, you know, some of our work is outside of the household of faith. It is the gospel message. But sometimes the work is right within our own midst. And that is to teach one another the truths about who God is and how he wants us to live. And here we see Paul demonstrating that. The value of these women, you don't just throw the, the baby out with the bathwater. When problems come, you don't just write people off. You work to draw, to draw them back into a, a harmony and unity with one another. Right? Okay. So what about contrast? Tell me some contrasts that you have. So, go ahead. Ah, uh, very good. Yeah, okay, the peace. Uh, well, actually, I did, all, I did those two, and I added one more in there. What is in verse 8 as a contrast to being anxious? Pardon? That's right. Dwell on these things. What your mind dwells on is is a contrast to the idea of being anxious. If you're anxious, rather than dwelling on what, what is listed there, then there, that's a contrast. So they're, interesting, huh? So that's in verse 8, this is in verse 7, and this is verse 6. So 6, 7, and 8 give you a contrast to what started in 6 with the idea of not being anxious for anything. So what is, what is the first and foremost antidote to anxiety, this kind of being anxious? Prayer. Prayer. And prayer, yeah, pr obviously, trust comes out of a result of that. And it, part of it has to go back to the idea of, is there any consolation in Christ Jesus? Do you find that in him there's, there's any hope, any, any love, any uh, compassion? And if you have that, Trust, it's because you based it on knowledge of who he is, right? Um, any other contrasts? Okay, contentment versus? Okay, so we need to kind of help me figure that one out, how to say that being content... Um, it could also almost be contrasted with anxiety, too, couldn't it? Um, well, he's saying be content in whatever circumstances, 
Yeah. No, it really isn't. But, but. Right. Right. It's a command is what it is. This is a command. It's kind of like before where I said, he says, stop it. Right. Don't be anxious. Stop it. Be content. Stop it. True. Okay. Now that brings up a good point. He says to, to them in the, in the verses before, go back to, is it six or seven, where he talks about, he gives them a list of things. He says um, in verse nine, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, right? And the God of peace will be with you. And then he follows it in verse 11. Now that I, uh, not that I speak for want for, I have learned. So there's a contrast. What they, they have learned and what he has learned. He says, I have learned and they have learned. Let's put that up here. Um, you have learned. And that's in nine. And what I have learned. They're not exactly a contrast. They're more of a comparison or just saying that you've learned and I've learned. We've both learned. And I, what it, when he makes this statement what, about what he has learned, and, and he directly follows it with them telling them that they are to practice the things that they have learned, what do you think his point is in doing that? Okay, good. That their learning is worth something. What else does it do? If I tell you that I've learned something this week, what does that do for you as a student who's following me and you're trying to learn? Because? Okay, yeah. And hey, also, it, what it does is it also brings me down to being a part of who you are as well. It brings me into this unity with you or this, this relationship with you that we're all learning. I'm learning, you're learning. Do you remember when he did this before? Where he says, um, he's talking about, uh, let me go back, because it, it just popped in my head here. In verse 12, he's talking to them previously about um, not putting their confidence in the flesh and beware of these things and so forth. And he's talking about them in, to do all these things, right, in order that, the, that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, right? But I press on so that I, that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of. When he says, I've not become perfect yet, what is he doing? How, do you remember what he said in chapter 1, verse 6? I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So, and then he says, well, I've not already become perfect, but, but keep on moving forward. And since he says, I've not arrived yet, what does that help them feel? You're still working too, yeah. You've not, you're not up here with your nose in the air looking down on them, standing on your little pedestal saying, I've arrived and you haven't. He's saying, we're all in this together. 
I am working towards perfection, meaning God is working his perfection in me, and he will continue to work in me until the day of Christ Jesus or until the day I stop living and he takes me to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. And then he's saying to them, I want you to also strive for that also. Reach out for that goal. So keep pressing forward toward that goal. And in doing that, what he says, I'm not there yet. You're not there yet. We're going on. This is a journey we're on together. He says the same thing here. These things that you have learned. And then he says, here, let me tell you what I've learned. And he's t he joins them, basically. Do you see that? fellowship that kind of he brings himself into um, equality with them in a way that that exhorts them to say you know what we all are on this journey and it doesn't end until life ends until God takes us to be with him and it's a it's a it's a progress there's a couple of things that this can do number one it it takes him down off the pedestal and makes him among them but what else does it do for their relationship anything else when people are looking at people who are leaders, do they sometimes uh, set a, too high of a standard for them? I think so too. I think it also bring, not only brings him down so that they feel like he's in it with them and that he's their companion, he's their, their, he is their fellow workman, which is what he talks about with these ladies. He says, they're my fellow workers, right? He says, I'm with you in this. We're fellow workers. I have my job. It happens to be this position, but you have yours, and this is yours. And then he talks, and he, and he joins them together. He merges them together of equal value and of, you know, um, a joined, um, I mean, they're banning together. It's not him and them. It's us, right? I love the way that he does that. It's a subtlety in here, but it, it really is, I think, important. Uh huh. Yes, and in that, when he follows that up, that's in verse 17, that's, uh, and it was actually a contrast in there, in, four, in chapter 4, verse 17, he says, not that I seek the gift itself, right, but I seek for what? The profit which increases to your account. Now, has this subject, what is this profit thing about? Is it, is it a synonym to another statement he's made earlier? The crown. Exactly. So you might want to put the crown and put up here the profit to your account. That's exactly right. It is, it is exactly as you're storing up for yourselves treasure in heaven. And he speaks of them as his crown. He is their treasure. Because why? What has he done for them? What does he say earlier in chapter 2, verse 17? Or maybe it was 317. Let me look. In 217. I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. So he talks about his investment, 
his life being poured out on their behalf, that this is, and then he says, you are my crown. So what we're talking about here then is good works unto the Lord, which reap a reward. In this case, he, he refers to them as a crown, and he refers to them as a prophet to their account. Pretty cool, huh? So there's another subject that has come up. And he says, I don't seek for um, the gift itself, but I seek for the profit to your account. So he, he's preceded that by saying, I don't really have, uh, I don't really feel in distress or anxious about these things. My circumstances, I've learned to be content in them, whatever it is. And he lists all these possibilities, these back and forth, right? In, in having want or not having anything at all. But then he says, um, but I'm really glad that you have basically come back to a desire to serve me in this way. Of all of Paul's epistles, this is at least one of the top ones as far as him writing a letter to close friends. Yes, it, very, it, it really is. I mean, maybe Philemon also a little bit because he talked, you know, the past relationship he had. Yes. And he really says that through the whole book. I mean, he starts out right at the very get-go. He talks about how they have uh, been co-workers with him or laborers with him um, from the very beginning. He says uh, their participation in the gospel from the very first day until now. And then sp sporadically through here, we, we saw him back in chapter Two, we talked about Epaphroditus and how he came to him with an offering and so forth. And now here in the closing, we see in the last half of chapter 4, uh, starting at about 12, isn't it? Uh, let me see. Yeah, 10 to 23, basically, is almost like the whole end of it could be a closing. The way that Kay handled it in her notes to the teacher was she put that all as one section. Now, I broke it down because I felt like there were some really important also instructions in there. Again, there were more instructions. That when, you, when you look at, let's, let's go back and just do an outline on this, because I think it's going to help us. We're going to say in number four, how are you going to title chapter four? Now, here's what you have to do with chapter four. Again, we got a bunch of thoughts up here, don't we? What is the one thing that links them all together? What is it that, what are the excerpt? did any of you make a list of exhortations, right? When you did that, was there one that's kind of took all of them and put it underneath one umbrella? Can, can I, do you need me to help or do you guys have any thoughts? Uh, well, four four is the book is the book theme about rejoice in the Lord always, and that is true because that's the ultimate goal. But in chapter four itself, if you are looking about the idea of rejoice in the Lord always, how by living to Christ, by living for others, by glorying in Jesus, and for the upward call in chapter four, what is he saying for them to do? There you go. Yes, because when he says these things. What is he including? What is the list? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it includes every. He just lumped it all into one great big. He's, he literally does. And he does it in two ways. He also, uh, in verse 8, he covers a do these things, right? Dwell on these things, right? And g tell me the list. What does he say dwell on in 8? Dwell on the things that are 
Okay, dwell on these things. So what, what part of your life does dwelling uh, reflect uh, about? It's your mental, it's what you're thinking in your mind, right? And then he goes into verse 9 and he says, now practice these things. Now list the things he says to practice. In verse 9, what, ha- what are the practice these things? Yeah, what you have learned, what you have received, what you have heard, and what you have seen in me. Now, in chapter 4, would you say that pretty much covers everything? <laughs> so if you wanted to title chapter 4, what might you want to title it? Yeah, it could be. Yeah, follow Paul or, or follow my... He opens it with, uh, in this way, right, which means follow my example or remember the goal that lies ahead. Um, but in chapter 4, verse 9, then he says, practice these things. So he almost kind of brings it to a conclusion in two ways. The first one, he does it through the mind, and the second one, he does it through their actions, Right. And in doing that one in verse 9, he back, basically goes back to his, his exhortation, which he has actually had in place almost from the very beginning of this book. Follow my example. He lays out in chapter 1 what's going on in his life, and, and he demonstrates how, how he's going to respond and does respond to that bad circumstance. Starting in chapter 2 all the way then through the end, he keeps saying, follow Follow my example, follow Christ's example, follow the example of Timothy, follow the example of, of Epaphroditus, right? And then he comes back to himself again and again, follow my example. So I love this. And four, he says, basically, you're going to practice these things. So let's do this. Practice things learned in me. Did we have a contrast that actually brings that point up. Yeah, in 9 and 11, you have, what you have learned and what, I, and what I have learned, these things. And so again, he's demonstrating to them what he's learned and then they're to, to follow that. And who did he learn what he learned from? From Christ. Christ is the, is the standard. And so he, if he's the standard, do you guys remember my story about the standard? If I have time to do this. When I was in Greece, um, with Kay Arthur and their preset ministry on a trip to Greece. Do you remember this, Susan? It was such a cool experience for me. It was one of those moments where I really felt like the Lord reached down and spoke to me a little message, and it had nothing to do with what, what was going on around me. It was all just for me. So I loved it because it felt so personal. And I was, um, we had gotten up to the top of this mountain, and we were about to listen to Kay do a, a lesson, and the agora was down below, and we could see the, the Acrop- Acropolis, am I saying that right, on the hill with all of the, the beautiful features that were up there, which, of course, are pagan temples, which it was beautiful in nonetheless. <laughs> so we're sitting at the top, and we're all supposed to sit, and there's like 200 people on this trip, so it's hard to find a place to sit sometimes. And of course, I like to lallygag and talk, which is what I was doing all the way up the mountain. So I was one of the last ones to arrive. All the good prime seats were taken. So I looked around, and I thought, where am I going to sit? And there was this little basically a hole. It kind of looked like a trash can. It had a little square raised lip around it. And down in the bottom was this little uh, area where people had really been throwing empty paper cups and, you know, just trash. 
but the good thing about it was I could sit with my legs down rather than cross-legged, right? And so that would keep my circulation better, and I could sit on the edge of that thing, and, and there was kind of a, a ledge there I could lay things out. That perfect. So I sat down, and when I sat in that, then the, the group around me and behind me started teasing me, saying, Katie's sitting in the trash can, right? And, I <laughs> and then they were just poking fun at me. And it was because we were on like day 11 almost, I think it was, of the trip. And it was so much fun. And we had become great friends. So it was, it was all done in good humor and good fun. So Katie's in the trash can. Well, the tour agent overheard the conversation and she came over next to me and squatted down next to me and she whispered she said this is not a trash can and I said well I'm thinking well we obviously we know it's not but I said oh and she says no she said this is a standard I said oh and she said uh, she said do you see this hill over here and she pointed I looked and she said they used to quarry out of here the um, the clay that they would use to make clay pots and the clay pots would be formed and dried, you know, and then uh, these clay pots then were filled with things like grain or oil or, or other kinds of wares and taken down to the Agora to that market area that Paul, we all hear about in the book of Acts, and he walked through and he saw a sign that's, you know, to all the, all the unknown God, right? The, the unknown God, and Paul gave his great speech about that. So she was talking about that, and she said, this is a standard. She said those clay pots, when they're made and formed, he, she said they would be brought to this clay pot. Do you see in the bottom? I said, yes. She said, underneath that trash is a stone that is, that is hewn to an exact size and shape. These clay pots would be brought and would be set into the standard. And if they fit the standard, they would be sealed with a little, with a little, uh, uh, like a wire and a, and a um, metal or a, a clay seal that approved them as being the appropriate size and they were useful. They were deemed useful, sealed, and then sent to the market for use. If they didn't fit, if they didn't fit the standard, they would be broken and they would be thrown out in the refuse pile. That's what a standard is. And I thought, oh, that was the most exciting thing to me. I almost wept at that moment because I thought that, that was the best, I guess, to me, visual of what a standard is really all about. So retain the standard of sound doctrine is the verse that came to my mind. Well, in this passage, Jesus is the standard. He's the example, right, by which we are laid up next to. And when we are laid into the standard of Christ's example that he has set for us, are we fitting? Are we going to be sealed, filled, and be made useful? Or are we going to have to be broken again and start all over? And in a way, this kind of fits with the storyline of these two women who are in a place of brokenness. Are they fitting the standard? Are they? No, not at the moment. Have they in the past fit the standard? Yes. The fact that they're not fitting the standard at the moment Paul reiterates their names are in the book of life. It's a done deal, right? But they need help. So at this point, they might have to be remolded <laughs> just a tad bit. There's some tweaking that needs to go on. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I love it. All right. So he says about for you and I then, he's 
follow my example because I'm following the, the standard example, the standard who is Christ himself. Follow my example who is Christ. And then he says to them, therefore, do these things. Now we're going to break down those paragraphs and get a nice outline. Chapter breaks down into the very first one is simply verse 1. And the reason I mark verse 1 all by itself is because there's an actually a therefore at the beginning of the verse, which tells us what? It connects back to what went, was before it. Really, that, that verse there should have gone back in chapter 3, at the close of chapter 3. But they brought it to the beginning of 4. I don't know why, but we're going to mark it all by itself. And in, in verse 1, what does he tell them to practice there? To do what? To stand firm in the Lord. That's the first exhortation that he gives them. And so I love this. Go back to 1 6. God is perfecting us until the Christ, until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul has said in, has told us in his example, I'm in prison for the gospel. And in verse 17 of chapter 1, he even says, And I have enemies who are who are basically trying to cause me distress, right? Remember that? And then he goes on to say, I don't care if the gospel is being preached in pretense or truth so long as it's being preached. But he had enemies, correct? Then he goes into chapter 3 and he says, you beware of enemies too. You also have enemies. I have enemies. You have enemies. Here we are again. He's equalizing himself with these people. He's joining in with them. I'm in the same good fight that you're in. I am in the same way as Christ is perfecting you. He is perfecting me. I have enemies, you have enemies, and beware of them. So then he goes on and he says, I have not yet obtained my perfection, neither have you, right? Until that day, keep pressing on towards the goal. Follow my example. That's what he's saying when he says, stand firm. That's a bunch, right? I mean, that's a bunch in that stand firm. Number one, that's just in one verse. Whoo! Okay, <laughs> so then in 2 to 5, we've talked about these women. So what is his exhortation to them? What are they to do? Live in harmony. And so we've kind of, I think, walked through that. Did anybody look up the names, uh, what they meant? Euodius uh, and Synthchi, Synthchi, Cynthia. <laughs> I made her English. Did anybody look those up? This was a very interesting, just to give you a little insight about them, because as you know, names often, you know, give you a description of the person just by, by their name, just like the names of Christ do so for him as well. Okay, Eudeus means prosperous journey, one who has arrived, or someone who has gotten somewhere in her life. And basically, this indicates that she was successful and an achiever. Okay, so she was maybe a smart businesswoman or something like that. All right, now the other one is Synthchi, or Cynthia, as I'm calling her. This means pleasant acquaintance, happy, good luck is another way. Her name indicates that she has a pleasant personality and is likable. Very interesting, two very different women, one who's probably real serious and you know, a hard worker and achieves things. The other one is, is the one who makes you feel good when you're with them because they smile, they make you feel warm and happy because they're warm and happy, right? We need them both, right? I just thought it was insightful. Not that it really goes anywhere beyond that, but I just thought the, in, the insight on it was good. Interesting to me, though, is this. Did you notice how he, 
uh, he says in following that uh, exhortation to them, then let your gentle spirit be known to all men. That's all in that same verse or that same paragraph. But then he concludes it with what? The Lord is near. What is, what is that saying? If the Lord is near is a, is a book statement, then it certainly, then it would be in reference to his second coming, right? The day of the resurrection and so forth. But if it's connected directly to this, in which I think it probably more is, just because of the flow of thought here, when he says the Lord is near, what is that saying? Yeah. He is There you go. I lo- the, uh, the eyes of the Lord, right, are present with you. He is ever present because, first of all, he's your abiding spirit. So you can't leave his presence. He, he sees and he knows what's going on with you. And he's watching. And if he's the standard and you are a broken vessel in this moment, a piece that needs to be reworked, God is watching and he's watching to see how you handle this. He's watching how you handle your relationships with one another. Who? That's kind of convicting, huh? Well, it can be. You know, as we, as we interact with one another in the household of faith, I, I remember when I was real young, one of, the, one of my um, things that my discipler had, ta- had asked me to do, and I did do it, um, when I was first learning how to walk with the Lord, she said, take a photo of Jesus, something that you get out of a kid's coloring book or, or a postcard or whatever, a picture of Jesus, frame it, and set it on top of your television. Every time you turn the TV on, who do you see before you turn that TV on? The face of Jesus. What was that supposed to do for me? It was to remind me that the Lord is near. The Lord is watching, that the Lord is present. Although, I didn't, you, know, you shouldn't have to have a picture of that, but you know what? If you have a problem in any area in your life, whatever your area of life is a problem for you that's a challenge because you, want, you, you tend to go into sin for some reason in it, could be your computer, could be your refrigerator, <laughs> could be, you know, in, in my early in my early walk with the Lord, when I was first being discipled, it was about training me to understand that God is watching. There, there was a song, be careful little eyes what you see, right? Be careful little ears what you hear. So there was this little tune that, that we used to sing in our group together. We, there were 12 of us, which was quite interesting. Our leader and 12 of us, and she was discipling all of us. And this was some of the things that she took us through. And very practical. And I still remember them after all these years. And so put the picture on there. This, I think this is what he was saying right here. The Lord is near. He's watching. He's present. And remember, you give account to him one day for every word that is uttered, for every thought that's thought. Not that you can lose your salvation because your name is in the book of life. But there is still a day of account. And that... For us, um, we're not there, but the idea of the crowns, in 1 Corinthians 3, it talks about our works, our life, basically going through the fire. 
And what remains, there's a reward for. And everything else is burned up. Yes, I know. Yeah, it is a challenge. And then, he's, and then he gives you a solution, really, also. By going in there being anxious for nothing, but by prayer, do these things. So live in harmony. Then in 6 to 7, it's uh, by prayer. Lift requests to God. And you can say it in any way that you like. I mean, however you pull out of that. But literally, he is saying, stop being anxious. Go to prayer in everything. Give those requests to God. And the result will be what? That's right. Lift prayer, request to God, and peace of God will guard you. Now, did anybody do a study on that word guard you? We were supposed to look that up, I think, right? To guard. It's in verse 4, 7. And I'm not getting my word studies up on the board. I'm sorry, but we're... Isn't that cool? I love that one. I, th- I like the fact that it was li- literally protected by a military guard. It, it was, it was, there was this both authority but also power in this idea of guarding. He's saying that through prayer, then God will guard you. So who's the one that's the military presence for you? Now, what subject does that bring up, Becky? covenant (laughs) right because in covenant to become one right she and I talked about this earlier that's why I mentioned her because we were talking about how there are so many times in scripture where the subject of covenant comes up over and over even though it's not mentioned the subtleties of it are there because in covenant since two become one, there's a, this responsibility of protecting one another. We are to protect the holy name of God through our behavior, but, but who is the real power in, in this position? God is. And what he says to us is when you're under distress and if you're being anxious, stop being anxious and go to prayer. And in prayer, I'm going to guard you. It made me think there's a passage in Psalms 73 maybe it is, where it talks about entering into the sanctuary of God, and then I saw their final demise. Do you guys remember this verse? It talked about, In that case, it wasn't talking about being anxious. It was talking about being envious, envious of the, of the wicked and how they seem to prosper and their life seems to be easy and so forth. Until I entered into the sanctuary of God. When I entered into the sanctuary of God, then I realized their final demise. I see that their, their feet are on slippery slopes. They are, their feet, they're headed to destruction. And boy, does that sober you up, right? In the same way, here he's saying, by prayer, go to the Lord, and then he is going to guard your hearts. Because when you enter into the sanctuary of God, what occurs in your mind? What has he said previously on these things dwell? What did he say in chapter 4, verse 8? The next very, very next verse. 
Finally, brethren, then do what? Whatever is true, whatever is pure, honorable, right, pure, lovely, good repute. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Well, what I thought in my mind was whatever is pure and true and honorable. Well, who is? God. And so when you enter into the presence of God in prayer, the first thing that goes to your mind or should go to your mind is in whose presence am I? That's a, that's kind of a sobering moment, but it's also a comforting moment. It's a moment when you go, my father is God who created everything. He is omniscient. He's all-powerful. He's completely sovereign in my life. He knows the things that are going on. And he's in control. It is, it is in his power to will and to do for his good pleasure in my life. And knowing that, then, he is guarding me. Wow. I know. First of all, you just think, wait a second. Is anything too difficult for God? So why am I anxious about anything? And if I really, it's not that God doesn't want to hear from us. He does. But I do think he wants us to approach him understanding the truth of who he is and acknowledging that and in doing that alone our whole our whole engagement with him beca- becomes us submitting to him acknowledging him loving and worshiping him now we're ba- now we're to that to that verse in chronicles you know where Jehoshaphat how did Jehoshaphat enter into the presence of God what did you see when you looked at that Yeah. There you go. So he stood in the presence of God, first on the knowledge of who God was. First of all, he, he was smart enough to know, I better go to God. When my enemies come against me and I feel under pressure from the world and I feel hopeless and helpless, my resources and strength is God. So he went to the right place to begin with. So that alone was was an acknowledgement, right, of God in his life. But then he also went there on the promises. All the people came through. Yes, and then he called the people. That's right. So he recalled God's word, and in doing that, he was placing his trust, basically, in the fact that God's word was both true and that God himself is trustworthy, that he counted on God doing exactly what he had promised. He was actually recalling um, a prayer that was made early when the temple was dedicated. Do you guys remember that? Solomon's dedication of the temple, where Solomon himself said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and call on me, right, then I will, and confess their sin, I will heal their land. All right, so he says, um, with Jehoshaphat, after he did this prayer, what was the next thing that you observed when you looked at that, the unfolding of those events? Was, was the next thing to run and go see what God was doing, or, or was there something else first? Moving from 
Right. And what was their response? In just the word, not the, visu the visible presentation of it, but what was their response to the word given them? There you go. They prayed and? And rejoiced. And there. the next morning when they get there, they, they were rejoicing and they sang praises there you to go. the Lord as they went out. There you go. They were, and when they got there, everybody was there. So do you think that's a pattern we should follow, that we, we lift our requests unto God, and then before we, we actually have evidence of God completing what we've asked or seeing the evidence of it being fulfilled in any way, shape, or form, what is the next step for us? Thanksgiving and worship. You go to the, that's what Jehoshaphat did. It said they sang praises and they worshiped before the Lord. They did that before they did anything else. And then the last thing they did was the next morning they went then and looked. That's right. They were singing praises before they saw what God had done. In other words, what does that tell you about their, their relationship with God at that point? They were totally trusting that he was going to do something. They didn't totally know what, but what, what the word had been given to them through the prophet was, the battle is whose? The Lord's. Now, do you and I live our life about, when we have things of anxiety come to us, do we live our lives understanding the battle is the Lord's? Paul has already told us in this, in this book that it is, it is the Lord who wills and works to do his good pleasure in our life. We have seen that he who began a good work in you will do so until the day of Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? And so as trials are coming, what Paul has demonstrated to us is that through trials, Paul himself is working toward perfection. And he says, I've not yet attained it. But I'm still going until my last breath. I'm still moving forward. I am pressing on to the goal of the upward call in Christ Jesus. And so he's saying to you, trust God, go to the Lord in prayer, and rejoice in him. Worship him in the spirit. Worship him even before you see your answers. Have that much faith and trust in him. Amazing story. That's what he did there. In Psalm 33, you all looked that one up also. Psalm 33, 16 to 22, I think it was. That's on day five. five. Yeah, day five. Because four were the ones on anxiety. So day five is the one where he talks about prayer. What did you see in, day, in Psalm 33? What are the promises there about how God is um, going to guard you? Yes, he is our help and our shield. And when he, when, she said, when he said to them, the Lord is near in verse 5, do you see that also in 33? The eyes of the Lord is, is where? Do you see that in verse 33? Or in, chap, in Psalm 33? I'm sorry, I can, I can look it up. Hold on, I'll tell you which verse it is because I didn't write that verse number down. I'm sorry, say it louder. Very good. That's in verse 18. Did you hear her? The eyes of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those whose hope, those who hope for his loving kindness to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. 
for our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. So that, was, that verse was given to us as a demonstration again of how to handle anxiety. So Paul is saying, follow me. Do you think Paul had reason to have anxieties? Yeah. Uh, from the history lesson, that the little bits that I've shared with you about this church and where they are in history and what's going on with them both politically and religiously in, in their world, basically, did they have reasons to be anxious? And were they legit, legitimate reasons to be anxious? Were they, but I think most of us tend to spend a lot of time uh, on figments of our imagination for fear. <laughs> but, but there are times when there's a reality for fear to come. I mean, when real literal crises come into your life, that there's a, there is sometimes a very good reason to have fear. God doesn't say don't have the fear, but he says when you have fear, what should you do? You need, to, you need to assess that you're in a moment of fear and you need to immediately go to, into the presence of the Lord. Go to him in prayer and lift these needs and these up to God. And then what will he do for you? He will guard your hearts and your minds. Did you notice that? Hearts and minds, again, are mentioned. Where is that mentioned already before? On these things dwell and, and practice these things. Isn't that interesting? It's kind of like the follow-up from his um, exhortation in chapter 1 not to be terrified by the enemy. There you go. Exactly. That's exact. good one. That's exactly right. And we looked at that. That was when I went back and did that history le lesson on why was, why was he mentioning about being terrified? What did they have to be terrified for? Well, all kinds of things. We know the Jews had been persecuting the church from the from the way back at the beginning, but also Rome was right, rising up. Nero was soon to come to power. The temple was soon in 70 AD to be destroyed even, and the people dispersed again. So there was a lot of political things going on and certainly religious things that were going on. Okay, so we see by request. Now in then 8 and 9, how do you want to title that one? We've already titled Practice These Things Learned in Me, so what might you want to... Oh, I'm sorry. That's my noisy phone. It's off, but it's still making a lot of noise. Sorry. <laughs> um, what do you want to title eight and nine? Okay, you could do dwell on these things. That's what I did because I just didn't want it to be the same as the, t the chapter title. And it covers now both things. This is the mind and this is the action, right? All right. And then we see 10, 10 to 23. And as I said earlier, Kay kind of clumped this all together. And she just talked about this whole segment being about Paul's thankfulness to them for their participation in the gospel and, the, and their contribution of gifts. But I do think that there's a way for us to break this down. I think there are some more um, commandments, but they're more like commandments through his demonstration. What does he demonstrate to them in 10 to 14? Yeah, 10 to 14, he, he basically says, be content in all circumstances. Um, I've learned how to get along in whatever circumstance I am, but, but, about what you're doing here, what? What does he say to them as a word of exhortation? Be 
They say, I've, I've learned to be content in everything. Just keep your money. Keep your gift. No. What does he say to them? That's right. And you've done well to share in my affliction. So he really exhorts them for their, their act of kindness, for their gift of giving, for their desire to work with him and come alongside of him. How many missionaries and uh, other kind of ministries do we contribute to as in the same fashion? We, you know, we may not necessarily have as, as close of a personal relationship with these places that we give to, but when you send your money, when you give, I, we're doing an offering right now for the Samaritan's Purse for Christmas time. When you give to something like that, do you understand that he's saying you have done well to share in that ministry? You've done well. And it will be to your credit. And he, and he literally, that's where I got that, con, that contrast where, it sa- where he said, um, um, you send a gift for my needs. No, 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 sorry. I don't seek the gift itself, but I seek the profit to your account. So he's acknowledging that this is a crown for them when they give in this way. And so he acknowledges that you've done well to share in my affliction. Okay, then in 15 to 19, the next thing he's saying, I've learned to be content. What does he say in 15 to 19? He talks about himself in those first ones, and then in 15 he says you. Right? He kind of makes a switch. You now. There you go. There's another contrast. You supplied. Let's put that up here as another contrast because we want to get that in there. Um, You supplied my needs. God will supply your needs. And so those are in verse um, 14 and 19, basically. That's the contrast statement there. So in 15 to 19, um, we see then the title could be what? God will supply. All your needs. I love that. Through you, God supplied for me on more than one occasion in verse 16. And God will do the same for you. So you don't need to. So this is a beautiful list of of really commands or practice these things, right? It is a it's a consolidation of practice these things in this one section, but in it encompasses because of the, the practice these things, which, which is all that you have learned in me, all you have received in me, all you have heard from me, and all that you've seen in me, do these things, practice these things. He's encompassing the whole book, and quite honestly, things that aren't even in the book. Things about his life that they know because they've, they've participated in from the beginning from the first day that he arrived in Philippi back there in Acts chapter 16 and 17, and he, he visited them, and he shared the gospel with them, and the church was birthed. He met Lydia, and he met the, um, uh, who was the jailer, right? 
and it talks about these these the uh, the history that's in there is is just an assumed thing even though it's not listed in this particular record all these things that you've seen in me and heard in me and witnessed in me all the things that I've taught you practice these things stand firm in the Lord live in harmony by prayer lift request to God dwell on these things be content in all circumstances God will supply all your needs beautiful I love this chapter and that was just one week's homework. And we didn't get through every single point, but we got through a lot. Um, I'm with you. I agree. I agree. I have decided uh, Philippians is one of my favorite books. I just, I've never studied it like, the, like inductively before. I've dabbled in it. I've dropped in it before. But this is one of the most exhorting books, I think, that you can study. And after having come out of the Kings and Prophets, the part where we laid down so much historical stuff and it was so taxing, this has just been very refreshing. So, But we are often back to our Kings and Prophets study, and we're going to do part four and five next. <laughs>